when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Ryan Peterson, the founder and CEO of Flexport, which makes software to optimize shipping everything from huge containers to e-commerce deliveries. Flexport is a fascinating company. We actually had Ryan on the show last year, but this episode is a little different. Since we last talked, Ryan handed off the CEO role to a 20-year Amazon veteran named Dave Clark, decided with his board of directors that Dave wasn't working out, then fired him and returned to CEO just a few months ago. This all happened inside of a year. I always joke that Decoder is fundamentally a show about org charts. And on this episode, Ryan and I got deep into why he made and unmade the biggest org chart decision there is. And this was quite a decision. The last time Ryan was on Decoder, he was excited about the transition to Dave Clark as CEO. He told us Dave knew the business like, quote, the back of his hand, and that appointing Dave as CEO would let the rest of the company become more innovative and focused. That didn't happen. Flexport laid off 20% of its employees in January, right before Ryan handed the CEO title to Dave Clark. Clark then successfully oversaw Flexport's acquisition of Shopify Logistics in June, but things continued to unravel. And by the first week of September, the board asked Clark to step down and for Ryan to come back. Ryan's second term as CEO has begun with some significant challenges as well. He'd only been back for a few weeks when the company laid off a further 20% of its workforce. We talked about that. Ryan will be the first to tell you that the shipping market is volatile and carving out a niche is hard work. And you'll hear him explain that even though Flexport is a tech company and makes software, the company's success is through old-fashioned customer relationships. You'll also hear him explain why the shipping market is so volatile, which is fascinating. Ultimately, moving things around the world depends on a series of interlocking systems and people that have to work together. Rainfall in Panama, unrest in Yemen, and changes in Russian airspace all affect how the goods you order online can get to your door and how much it costs everyone along the way. Flexport, at its core, makes software to manage all this, and you'll hear Ryan explain how that works. But moving things around the world involves that crazy patchwork of overlapping systems, and Ryan tends to look at it that way as a system. He has a fascinating perspective on the world's economy, and you can see how that shapes his view on what it takes to run Flexport itself. By the way, if you're interested in the mechanics of actually shipping things, go back and listen to our first episode with Ryan, because we got even deeper into it. Okay, Ryan Peterson, CEO, again, of Flexport. Here we go. Ryan Peterson, you are the founder and CEO, again, of Flexport. Welcome back to Decoder. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I'm really excited to talk to you. A little over a year ago, you were on the show. A lot has happened in that year, uh, including a global supply chain crisis coming to some kind of resolution, which I want to talk to you about. Uh, but then a lot has happened at Flexport itself. I'm just going to go through the list. You were on last September. You had hired Dave Clark as CEO. He was your co-CEO. You were about to step down and become executive chairman. That happened. So then Dave Clark was a CEO. Then Dave left the company, which we should talk about the circumstances of that. And now you are the CEO again. 
In the meantime, you've made some acquisitions. There's been some public statements back and forth with Dave about him coming and going, and you've had two rounds of layoffs, and the world still needs to move containers around. That's quite a lot. Did I miss anything? Man, that last part, you know, the world needs to move containers around. There's been a crazy volatility in the freight market. So definitely interesting for companies out there to understand, you know, what is what is happening, what to expect over the next year or two. Yeah. Let's get into all of that. But start at the very beginning. Give people the one sentence explanation of what Flexport does. Flexport's a global logistics provider, so we make it easy for companies to ship anything, anywhere, from in any quantity, really, any product, uh, from this whether it's a small parcel to multiple containers or hundreds of containers, uh, thousands of containers, some of our customers, from factory floor all the way to into customers' doors or into retail stores as well. Just to be clear, Flexport makes the software that makes that go. Well, we make it happen, and and the software is a, the reason it works with high quality is that we build software for every leg of that chain. Fundamentally, our business model is customers pay us to move product, but what differentiates us from every other logistics provider is that we are technology companies, so building software to make it more seamless so that the data can flow in parallel to the goods, and now increasingly so that capital, the money, can flow as well. So you've got, you know, supply chains are about three core flows. It's the flow of the product the flow of the data, and the flow of the cash, and building tech to make that seamless for everybody. That's it. That's what Flexport does. Again, just to be clear, and I encourage people to go listen to the previous episode with you because it is one of my favorite episodes of Decoder, but you don't own trucks or ships. You make you connect those providers through software. We don't. And the, and the reason you need a company like us is that the, the people who own the assets fundamentally, you know, a ship goes from port to port, but the goods have to go from door to door. You know, the planes stop at the airports, but the goods have to keep moving. And and the the freight forwarding layer is responsible for clearing customs with the governments, coordinating that truck to come pick it up, maybe putting it on the rail. We do a lot of barge shipping in, in various parts of the world, China, Vietnam, and Europe especially, moving containers on the barge to and from the ocean ports. So it's a complex coordination problem at the end of the day. And this is where software really helps because you're getting many parties, a typical transaction, moving a container or an air freight shipment. You'll have at least a dozen companies do something in that chain. And then more once you start counting the governments that are involved, customs agencies and others. A bank is usually providing some kind of capital for the transaction. An insurance company is underwriting the cargo risk. So it's just a lot of coordination that has to happen. I mean, if it was just buy low, sell high, put you on a container ship, you're just not adding enough value there to justify your kind of your margin as a, as a freight forwarder. One of the things we talked about last time, and I just want to continue to set the stage before we get into it, was that a lot of the process had been very manual. There was a lot of forwarding emails, filling out spreadsheets, making phone calls. Your software automated that, made it clearer and easier for all these parties to coordinate. But getting uptake on the software, I think people can easily see this. Going to all those different parties and saying, use our software to coordinate was one of the big challenges. Is that still one of your big challenges or is that receded? Are you more established in the market now? How's that working? Yeah. you know, Our our approach has been, and I think the reason that we've been successful where many technology companies have failed in this space or failed or struggled to get traction or struggled to take off as as you're implying, is that we are first and foremost a customer solutions company. Like We're going to solve this problem. And if that means picking up the phone to call the trucking company or the port or emailing somebody we'll do, or go meet them in person and take them to lunch and figure out what needs to happen to make this better. We'll do it. And then we come through over time and, and build the software to solve their problem, that asset owner's problem. So trucking is a great example. When we started on every container we moved, it took us like the stat was 42 minutes of labor, if I recall, of coordination with each truck with each trucking company on every container. So we've now built software, mobile app for the drivers. We've got a dispatcher app and our trucking companies that serve us in the US and in Europe, and we're bringing this to more locations. We don't pick up phones and email them unless there's an exception. They use our software, they see loads coming, they assign it to their drivers, uh, and you build that automation over time. Same is true with our warehouses, where we have an amazing warehouse management software system deploying into partners' warehouses, not just our own. So we don't even have to run warehouses all over the world, but you get the visibility 
the control over those assets, even if you don't own them. And that's the ultimate goal is like owning assets is you don't get the return on capital that technology investors are looking for from owning assets. So we try to avoid that wherever we can uh, and build software instead. You have two big acquisitions this last year, Shopify Logistics or Deliver, and then digital freight network called Convoy. How do those integrate? How do they extend the vision of what you're doing? Shopify Logistics actually is a major acquisition we did, over a billion dollars in equity uh, value. It was a stock deal. We love that deal because it extends us all the way to the door. The way to think about Flexport previously was we would take cargo from factories around the world and deliver it out to warehouses and distribution sites, fulfillment centers. Uh, This adds those warehouses and distribution centers so that now we go all the way to customers' doors and into the retail network. So we we have integrations with kind of the 15 biggest, most important big box retailers in the U.S. and nice roadmap to keep adding more companies that we can deliver to. So that really makes you enterprise grade where you can go end to end for a customer. For me, it's like, it was a part of the vision that I had sort of been like, well, yeah, of course we'll get there in 10 years, you know, but we, we, it was, there was enough to focus on in the freight forwarding world. But the reason it's very exciting is you now have data for those customers that are using the full end-to-end and increasingly, you know, we're cross-selling this thing across both cu- customer bases. Customers place orders to their factories through Flexport. So now I know, all right, how long is it taking to produce those goods? Because the place the order to the factory, the factory becomes a user of our system, places a booking to come pick it up. So I know the lead time from when you order goods to when they're produced. We are, of course, responsible for transit time into your warehouse network. So that's your whole supply side. You can call it supply side latency. How long does it take to get goods made and delivered? Now you have demand side data, what's selling, what's going out, and where are those end customers? So you're now in a position to go, wait, we can start making suggestions to customers, not just about routing of goods, but about how many goods to order, when to order them, which fulfillment centers they want to be in, in order to optimize their business. And by optimize the business, I mean, how much inventory do you keep on stock relative to the orders that are coming in? Because you have a fundamental trade-off that you're making as a brand if you have a lot of inventory, you can have really fast ship promises. You can deliver next day, same day delivery. If you want to do same day delivery, like GoPuff style, you got to have goods in every neighborhood all the time. Very expensive to have that much inventory there. If nobody buys anything, you, you know, kill your business. Um, if you have way less inventory, you're going to have very unreliable ship times. In fact, it might be three weeks a month. You might have to go produce the goods on demand, like furniture companies sometimes take months to deliver your stuff. So you're now in a position to help companies optimize that trade-off. And even like what we're working towards is go, hey, if you're a Shopify merchant, you should be never out of stock again. As long as you've placed the order back to the factories, instead of saying out of stock, it'll go, hey, ships in three weeks because I can see it on the ocean. I can see it coming in. And so you start to be able to be a growth engine for these companies. Nobody like wants to be a cost center. We're a cost center today. If I could be a growth engine, I'm talking to your marketing people. I'm talking to your sales people. Like, hey, how can I help you grow your business? Well, selfishly, you'll put your nicer employees on it. Like, you don't. <laughs> What's the personality profile I'm going to hire and put in charge of talking to my freight provider? It's not. It's not like the you know, if I'm running a business, I'm not going to find the nicest guy in my company to do that job. I want like the bulldog who's going to go beat people up on rates. So it lets us talk to the friendly guys who are trying to grow the business. <laughs> Just a great way to optimize hiring and structure. What kind of personalities do we need? Here's the cast of cheers. Who's the grumpiest one? Who's Ted Danson? How are we going to assign I love our roles? customers. They are I love our customers and they are supposed to be discontent. That is what they're hired to do, right? <laughs> uh, so that's a big vision, right? We're going to not only optimize how people use freight to move goods around the world, we're going to take the data back out of that and help them optimize their businesses and help them have better relationships with their customers. How does Convoy fit into that vision? Convoy um, was a different type of acquisition. Uh, I probably couldn't have afforded it but they ran into some trouble, ended up being a distressed asset. And so we, we got a great deal. We didn't acquire the company. We acquired the technology and a core group of about 50 of the 
top engineers that came over. They had built incredible technology for truck brokerage. This is full truckload domestic within the United States trucking. Something that Flexport did, we have about a $270 million top line revenue business in trucking, if you count all the types of trucking that we do. But, you know, we'll do over... Well, we did last year about $3.8 billion in revenue. So for us, it's a pretty small piece of the overall puzzle. That said, every container we bring in eventually becomes a truck move, you know, somewhere down the line. It's got to move by truck. Trucking is as big of a market as international forwarding. Just domestic U.S. trucking is just a massive market. Convoy built incredible tech. They have, we have now at 400,000 drivers on a mobile app, which I hadn't thought that much about this space because it's kind of adjacent to what we do. But what I was realizing as I got to know their technology over the the weeks before the acquisition is there's like an incredible amount of tech that has to go into doing that compliantly and safely and securely because these drivers are, it's like think Uber for trucking, but like you got to do background checks on these people to make sure they're not going to steal your cargo. So it's like doing like six different background checks before every single load. They have to have the app on while they're driving if they veer off the suggested route, it like sends an alert to the physical security team being like, Hey, you know, is this cargo getting stolen? What's happening right here? So they have like best in class tech for that kind of stuff. Customers don't necessarily see that, but they appreciate it once they learn about it and all this routing algorithms, the margins were really good on the business. They just didn't get it to the scale required to cover the fixed costs. We only took about 10% of those fixed costs over I I think it's going to turn out to be an amazing acquisition. We're working with all the old customers they had to go, hey, you know, come back. You can trust us. We're going to light this thing back up. So I'm pretty optimistic. And from from a vision standpoint, that that what that looks like for Flexport is sort of like, hey, one-stop shop. Ship anything, anywhere, any quantity, any mode. Today, both of those businesses are uh, the shop logistics, which we've rebranded as Flexport Omnichannel and Convoy. We haven't rebranded that yet, but um, both of those are U.S.-focused. I think you'll see us bring those products globally. I want to be able to, especially on the shop logistics thing, I want to be able to go to a brand in the U.S., say 90% of your sales are in the U.S., but if you look at your Instagram followers, it's 50-50 global in U.S. Why aren't you selling on Flipkart, Rakuten, Coupon, Mercado Libre in South America? Like, didn't you know I can light you up? We've got the international piece. we got the customs. We forward deploy the inventory into fulfillment sites down there and just help you grow your revenue. Again, I'm talking to the nicer people in your company. (laughs) If I'm growing your revenue, that's like a different conversation. Uh, We don't do that yet. Today, it's just U.S., but vision-wise, you'll see that from us over the coming four or five years is, is start to take that service global. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to get into the drama of it all. Why did Ryan come back as CEO after less than a year? Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now, what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote-unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com slash decoder. That's mintmobile.com slash decoder. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com slash decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
and we're back, and it's time to dig into the leadership changes at the company. This brings me to some of the drama, right? You're talking about vision. In particular, the last time you were on the show, you had Dave Clark as your co-CEO. You were about to step up to executive chairman, let him run the whole thing. And what you said to me was that you wanted to be focused on the customers. You're a customer guy. You wanted to go work with the customers, identify their needs, and, and be in that role and let Dave operationalize the company. That happened. He is the one who drove forward the Shopify logistics deliver acquisition, which it sounds like you think is pretty transformational for the company. But then it stopped working out, and now you're the CEO again. What happened there? The first piece is the most important one of talking to customers. I think the fundamental disconnect is um, e-commerce logistics, which is a consumer off proposition. Think of a major e-commerce marketplace called Amazon. You're not talking to your customers. You're sort of like, if you talk to the customer, that's a major defect. (laughs) Something went wrong. Like You're supposed to just fill out a web form and the thing gets delivered. B2B freight forwarding, global logistics, and just generalized B2B, you got to talk to your customers constantly because every business is unique. We all as human beings, like, of course, we're all unique, but like when it comes to shopping, we're not that different. You want to click a button, have it show up. It is not that many flavors to it. And therefore you can just kind of make a web form and not talk to the customer. B2B, like the business needs are so diverse based on, is it a wholesaler? Is it a retailer? Is it a D to C commerce versus selling through other people's retail stores? Are they just a manufacturer and importing raw material? Like the number of permutations is is really, really large. And there's a lot of SOP, standard operating procedures that go in that are very different. And frankly, relationships matter so much more. You got to be talking to customers nonstop. And that was just not happening at the level that's required to grow the business in our assessment, my assessment. So we weren't growing. Uh, and it was pretty obvious that that was the reason why. It's like leadership needs to get out there, talk to customers constantly. And so that's the, like the main thing. And it, was, it starts at the leadership. You lead from the front, get out there, talk to dozens of customers every week, get the feedback, solve the problems that you're hearing about. So I, I think that was the biggest disconnect there. We increased our cross basis too much probably some bad habits accrued from a world where capital is infinite and then we have a great balance sheet, but we're not, we don't have infinite capital. So I think we, some big company behaviors, we're just spending too much money. So those are kind of the two big course corrections I've had to make over the last, I've been back in the seat now for three months, cut costs like crazy, cut, letting go of some, some like not, a lot of nice to have things. Some, we, we let go of people, which always sucks. Like we let go of a lot of 650 people a lot of awesome people, a lot of my friends even, but that's the kind of hard, you know, you got to live in reality with the P&L and build a, build a profitable business. So yeah, we probably overhired a little bit, hired some kind of nice to have big company type stuff that we're just like, we got to be a scrappier, leaner startup. And our customers want that. Like we're not selling Gucci handbags. We're selling logistics services. You got to be affordable. So if you build up a cost basis, your prices become too expensive for your customers. So we've been really focus on lowering our costs so that we can be affordable for customers and like at the same time engage more deeply with the customers. We're not going to live in a world where you just tell a, a big enterprise customer, hey, just fill out this web form. Like, yeah. We're gonna talk to them and solve their problem. It feels like the cranky guys that you're talking about don't want to see you have nicer offices than they do. No, oh, 100%. Yeah, we do. We, we you know, some of the, by the way, not all of this is by any means uh, on the Amazon team that was here. And well, actually a lot of folks from Amazon still work in Flexport. They're awesome. Um, but a lot of this is 10 years of Flexport kind of like zero interest rate capital came very easily. <laughs> we got fancy offices. I'm in one of them right now. And like, you got to be much more cost conscious over time and you'll see us kind of roll off leases into more affordable office space, et cetera. Well, I want to get to that, right? The, the cost cutting and how you're structured now, the decoder stuff. But I, I just want to stay on the CEO transition piece for a minute. I I always joke this is a show about org charts, and this is some deep org chart stuff. So you hired Dave from Amazon to come operationalize the company. This is the thing that you told me that you wanted to have happen, that you wanted his operational excellence from Amazon to come in. You know, Flexport was established. You were growing. You want to run the company faster, and you're going to go talk to the customers. At some point, and this is the big discrepancy, at some point you say, Dave's not talking to customers enough. We're not growing as fast as we should. And Dave is on the record in some of the coverage of this saying basically the same thing that you're saying, but at an earlier point in the history, 
the problems were, quote, much more extensive than I thought they would be when I agreed to join. And the company had missed cost, margin, and revenue forecasts for multiple quarters before his arrival, and it needed process and financial discipline. So his view of this, from these quotes, are that first he needed to get the house in order before he could start growing again. And your view was he wasn't talking to customers anymore growing. There's overlap there, and then there's differences. Yeah. What do you think the overlap and the differences are? I don't think what Dave says is wrong. Like, yeah, of course, we're a startup. You know, you got problems. You got to solve things like financial discipline, like for sure. You know, I mentioned that. Like, hey, some of this is our own 10 years. A lot of it, 10 years of uh, zero interest rate, well-funded. We've raised $2.3 billion over our life cycle. So we're, uh, we're well-funded. And that I, I've said this in other places, like companies that raise too much money end up spending too much money. And I don't think yeah. we raised too much money, but we spent too much. You know, it's like, how do you create that? I've never seen a company <laughs> figure that out. One thing I'll say about that, there, there is uh, there has been some drama, like that's undeniable. Some, but it's not actually real to a large extent. A lot of this is, um, well, the demand for scandal in the world is much higher than the supply of scandal, and you just get kind of like, oh, you get a couple journalists in here, and they just kind of <laughs> like play it up to a big degree. And in fact, even fed the cycle where they were saying things to Dave as though I said them. It was someone else who I don't even know who it was, who doesn't work at, they even, the journalist told me it's an ex-employee, which I assume means someone who got fired uh, by Dave, talking crap, saying things about Dave, but then playing that off is like someone close to Flexport said this, and then Dave thinks the word trashing him when we're not at all. Uh, and then Dave's like overreacting or reacting to that. I don't even think it's overreacting. If, if I thought my ex-employer was talking crap about me, I'd be like, Hey, screw those guys. (laughs) So I, I totally see where he's coming from. But the reality is like, there's not, there's actually not hard feelings there. I think there was, and what Dave's points are accurate, you know, but I'm not going to say anything bad about him. I just think, Hey, you CEO of a company, you got a lot of problems. Cool. Let's go fix them. You know what I mean? And that's gotta be the, the attitude. And we definitely overspent. We just hired you know, we, we took our engineering team from, and I approved these plans, by the way. I'm not blaming Dave for this. I was like all in on it. We, we, we took our tech engineering org from 450 people at the beginning of this year, 2023, to when I came back, there were 1,300 software developers in, that, in a company. I mean, you kind of add 900 people to an engineering yeah. org in one year. I think any engineering leader out there would tell you, wow, that's very hard to maintain culture and actually get productivity out of a team when you grow it that fast. Uh, and that, and not to mention, it's just incredibly expensive. So a big part of the cuts that we did was I cut that team back in half. We're still more engineers than we've ever had in our history as a company until like, I, I want to say like June of this year or something. I mean, we just very aggressively ramped it and that's bad discipline. It's bad for culture to like over hire and then rapidly course correct. And I don't blame Dave for that because I was chairman of the board. I had to approve those hiring plans. I, I'm very excited about our technology roadmap. And I think I'm like, yeah, let's go build it now. Living in reality with the financials. And what, what has happened, which is out of our control, is the price of freight is down 80% year over year. Yeah, And our revenue is kind of price times quantity is our revenue. So you're, our revenue is only down probably half year over year. So, you know, a non-freight, person will look at that and go, oh, man, this company's in distress. The revenue's down by half. But actually, volumes in the industry are down 20%. Flexport volumes year over year are up about 12%. You know, non-flight person looking at a technology company will go, oh, you grew market, you grew revenue 12%. That's pretty weak. But if you take market share, you know, you're, if your volume's down in the market 20 and you're up 12, you're definitely the leading company in taking market share. But the financial reality is, hey, you probably can't afford to 3x your engineering team in a world where market price is down, your volume's only, you know, your volume's only growing 12%, your revenue's under pressure. But no, I, I, there's there's way less bad blood than the media would like. Media wants to make it look like Dave and I are in some kind of war. It's not like that. Well, you fired the guy. I mean, like, that, that's the part I want to ask about. Like, the, the mechanics of it are you hired the CEO, you evaluated his performance for a fairly short amount of time, and then you asked him to leave and became the CEO again. Yeah. I wouldn't say that's open AI levels of drama. It doesn't seem like your entire company revolted and you needed to get rid of the board of directors. It's still a level of drama in a world where you are correct, where there's high demand for drama. Yeah, yeah, Walk me through the mechanics of your decision. When did it click in your head, oh, I need to make a change here? Uh, There's not one moment. And by the way, it wasn't 
a decision that I made. This was like a unanimous vote of our board, which has a lot of great, you know, established leaders on it from with a lot of experience. A couple of bad quarterly results in a row where we're blaming macro. When you dig in, talk to customers, it's clear like, oh, you have to fix some quality issues. You got to uh, quality for in a logistics business about on time performance. It's about quality of data, responsiveness when they ask for a question or request a quote. Like some of our quality metrics weren't there. We've made massive improvements just over the last three months as we focus on them. But yeah, you know, you're sort of making excuses on one on the one hand, and then just cost basis was too high. It was clear to everyone, including Dave, hey, we're gonna have to make some big cuts. I felt, and a board felt that if you're gonna make some cuts to your headcount, and also that your culture is a little shaky. We've had a lot of new leadership, a lot of kind of core Flexport folks were feeling underappreciated perhaps, or that we, or there, there was some shakiness in the culture. Let's just say that. And the culture for Flexport is all about, hey, are we out here engaging with our customers, solving their problems constantly? Like some of that wasn't happening. And so if you're the CEO cutting people and saying that the culture is the number one thing we got to improve, it's like a really hard message for a hired CEO to deliver. It's like a way easier message for a founder because yeah. people know I care deeply about the culture and the people here. Like it's a lot of my friends. We built this company together over the decades. It's still a very hard for message for me to deliver. And it's been a challenge to go, yeah, I care deeply about the culture. It's my number one priority. Oh, and, uh, and 650 people are, are losing their jobs. Like that's, that's pretty hard. It's easy to come yeah. off as like a fake BS person in that. And we felt, we felt pretty strongly at the board level that, it was a better job for the founder to come do. Also, when it comes to growth, like we got to grow faster. Over my decade leading this company, we were one of the fastest growing companies in the world. Um, not just freight companies, like companies, period. And I, so I feel like very deeply, I know how to grow this business uh, in ways that, you know, over the last year, we just didn't grow. We grew 12%, but like, I can grow this thing. We're going to grow way, way faster than that in the, in the years to come. Uh, so track record of like, hey, what does the company need right now? stronger culture of engaging with customers, faster growth. Like these are things I'm good at. So you mentioned two things here that I, I just want to put together and, and ask a question about one, obviously the zero interest rate phenomenon of many, many startups and overspending. That's real. I, I think we see that throughout a lot of companies, but then two, you mentioned that Dave was from Amazon. He brought a team from Amazon. Some of those people still work there. Amazon's culture at the beginning, was very much a zero interest rate culture. Right? This is a company that famously was telling its own investors, "We're not going to make a profit. We're going to keep reinvesting in the company. Don't expect like go pick another stock if you want easy profits." This company is built to dominate, and they spent a lot of money, and now they're a dominant company mm. to the point where you know you could say, "Look, the Amazon playbook is to spend your way to a monopoly position." Whether or not you think Amazon is a monopoly, right? You spend your way to a dominant position. Do you think Dave was running that playbook and then the change away from the zero interest rate world undid that playbook and you had to pivot? Was that the right playbook? Do you think he was doing something else? Yeah, you know, like, on, to be honest, Dave's, like, vision was really compelling. Dave's strategy was mostly my strategy, approved a lot of it. I think if you had an extra couple billion dollars on the balance sheet, it'd be more reasonable. And so perhaps, you know, like, I think, wish there was a, Vision Fund 3 with $100 billion. <laughs> we can see that world and live in that reality. I don't know, man. Taking that Vision Fund money is kind of a kiss of death for a bunch of this company. Uh, <laughs> we, we, it, it served us well. They've been great partners for us. There's a chance, you know, we don't get to, we only get one timeline, right? So we don't have, we don't get to live in the alternative world where yeah. we let Dave play out his strategy. I would love to see that play out, right? I'd love to like go for it. He was going big. We're still going big, but he was going bigger, bigger. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It would be epic if all of Dave's plans were right. And he's a very credible guy and he could be right. You know what I mean? Like it's possible that that reality was the thing um, would have been truly epic and uh, would love to live in that world because we'd be just like a dominant, dominant. I don't probably nobody's going to build a monopolist in global logistics, but we would be a very big and powerful force for the world. But there's also a probability in that that you just fail. And like, that's not a probability I'm willing to live with. Like Flexport's never going to die. We're going to be, a company that's generational company and we're going to, but part of that is you're not taking, you're not betting the company, right? I think the levels of spending that we were 
going and we're still we're still in cost cutting mode we're still looking at every expense reducing our opex growing our profitability every every month i think that's like as the founder of this company, I don't know, this is my life's yeah. work and I plan to do this the rest of my life. So I don't want to see, there's not a world where we're going to bet the company on, on any kind of time frame. Let me ask you about the, the Vision Fund, actually. They are an investor of yours. The joke I was making is Vision Fund's famous investments are Uber and WeWork, where they did spend a lot of money to try and get to monopoly positions. Like, there won't be taxis, there will just be Ubers. There won't be landlords in New York, there will just be WeWork. That was the playbook, right? You're going to spend your way to a dominant position in the market. Was that ever part of your playbook when you were talking to Vision Fund? Was that, you called it Dave's playbook, it would be epic? Was that it? Well, at the end of the day, you know, Vision Fund is a major investor and a great partner for us, but we make the decisions in the company and the seat at the executive team level, not vision fund. Yeah. And they've always been super supportive of the decisions we want to make. My read on it was like global freight forwarding. It's very dangerous to just go try to subsidize. Let's say, I mean, a lot of what we work was, I don't know if we works business model that well. I love the product, by the way, I like renting short-term offices that are flexible. <laughs> we, we have like six, we works around the world in some of our smaller cities, but Uber, you know, they were kind of famously subsidizing rides to get to monopoly share type strategy. Uh, very, very dangerous in logistics. People are pretty mercenary. If you're cheaper, they'll switch to you. And the moment you're not, they'll switch off of you. Yeah. So you don't want to win on price. You got to win on the quality of the service you provide, the data that you can provide, the ability to get lock in through compliance services and customs. Like It's a way stickier business if you're selling on value. But if you're coming in and just discounting on price, you'll find as soon as you're not, you switch. By the way, Uber may find that, right? Like that might be the case if people just switch over to Lyft as soon as the, a lot of people like have both apps and just switch to whoever's cheaper. So I race Uber and Lyft all the time. I do it unrepentantly. I open both apps and they'll see who'll sign me a car first. That's admirable behavior. I'm lazy. I just use Uber, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, but it's, you know, it's interesting is I don't, I don't cost, you know, it's marginal cost. It's time. It's who will send me that car first. Yep. Um, so, but in logistics, it's kind of famously like, hey, you don't want to just come in and discount on price. It's it's a dangerous, and there's often, by the way, you'll often end up in a rat race to the bottom because what a lot of freight providers do is discount heavily and then kind of boil the frog. It's like you're fine because rates are very volatile. And so they'll tell you about when the rate goes up, of course, the cost goes up, but they don't call you when the costs go down. <laughs> so they find ways to kind of, make you think you're getting a deal. It's it's a more nuanced industry, I think. You got to be careful with it. Yeah. Last few on the company stuff, and I, I want to talk about the shipping industry at large and, and what you're seeing right now as well. Take me into the meeting room. I mean, this I I think of the audience for Decoder as every business school student in, in America. Everyone wants to run a company. Mm. These are the moments for you as a founder, as an executive, as the chairman of the board. These are the moments that no one gets to see, really. Well, you make the decision, right? You've talked to the board. I got to make a change. I'm the founder. I got to step back in here, mm. preserve the culture. What's that conversation like with Dave? Oh, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's just, hey, the- it was on the phone. It was on Zoom. Yeah, we weren't in the same city at the same time. So we did on a, on a, on a Zoom call, basically. Um, he's a real professional. You know, he just wanted to know, okay, what's, how do, what's the path forward? How do we land this news? How do we communicate this effectively, externally, et cetera? It's low drama. It's not- it's like he understood professional. Um, it's a professional business, so yeah. there's not there's not really a story there. Did you I, I, literally, as I think about business school students, which was a, a huge part of our audience? Did you make a calendar invite? Did you have a heads up? Like no one knows how to do this stuff. You just have to do it, right? I mean, you know, you fire people if you run a company. This is pretty much you have to do it. It sucks. It's yeah. the worst part of every every manager's job, but it's also. Uh, you just have to do it. Um, I'm personally, I'm a believer in make just being extremely clear about what's happening. So then, after that, there's the back and forth, whatever's going on in the press. How are you holding things together inside the company as, as those reports come out? You know, actually, internally, the vibe was incredibly positive from day one. 
this is not just like, oh, you know, because of course I'm going to get a biased sample of people are happy about me coming back are going to be the ones I hear from more often. But you can you can see it on blind. You can see it in a bunch of different uh, channels, like a, a bunch of I've got scuttlebutt. I got people, you know, <laughs> that people tell me what's the real word on the street. People are very positive because they saw some of the changes that were needed. Or, you know, they were pleased about a lot of the decisions that were made because um, one of the first things I did was come back and reorg the company's operations. Through our growth years, we were organized where a customer got a dedicated team of operators. That's who's moving the cargo for them, coordinating the shipment, same people every time. So you get to know these businesses, get to know their SOPs. Of course, we digitize and document the processes for each customer and they're unique. But when it's the same people every time running it, you just get much higher quality results, relationships, that the culture stronger, that team becomes, we call it a squad, they become much more of a gelled team with a little mini culture within its own. They take pride in their book of customers. We work with some of the coolest brands in the world. They get to take pride, you know, they start buying their products. They take, you know, they enjoy working for those customers. Um, we had moved away from that in pursuit of efficiency. Ironically, you become less efficient in logistics when your quality suffers because bad quality mistakes cost you all the efficiency gains you could gain from a, from a, in the week or in the month. Like you forget to pick a container up at the port. You're going to spend hours and hours negotiating and paying deep fees and stuff. And if you just were Johnny on the spot, you won't have that problem. So I'm not a genius by any means, but I had been talking to enough people pushing to go, Hey, we got to go back to the old model. So like on day one, I pushed us back to that. That created an incredibly positive momentum in the culture. So when, when the media is reporting negative things about us, and internally, we know that's not the case. It, it kind of creates this rallying cry internally, us against the world that I think is really positive for us. And then, you know, what I did in my first uh, two and a half months on the job was I did five customer calls a day, five to eight. I think on average, it was around five. Uh, so all day, every day, I'm just talking to customers. I managed to talk to something like 60% of our revenue in that time get feedback, document it, start solving the problems that I hear about, um, build that momentum. I, I can't talk to all the customers. We have like 5,000 customers, but talk to the biggest ones. I think a lot of momentum around the culture piece that I'm talking about. And so people start to see that and go, okay, this is awesome. Like, this is what we signed up for. They want us to get back to our startup kind of uh, scrappy roots. They don't want to see us waste money. They want to see us get profitable, our employees. So the vibe's been super strong. Part of why I want to do podcasts like this is I get to tell the full, you know, more detailed, nuanced story than what gets reported. I talk to a journalist uh, who's just, I know you also do long form journalism, but it's harder to package that in a story than it is, hey, we have an hour conversation and people can listen to a more, a more nuanced state telling of, of what's really happening at the company. Yeah, but if we don't do the journalism, then you won't be able to create the us against the world mentality. We're here for you, man. Oh, yeah, this exactly. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's a critical <laughs> part of the ecosystem. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back. We're back with Flexport CEO Ryan Peterson talking about decisions. The thing that I'm interested in, right, is the mechanics of, of change. Like that's what our show is about. Is like how do you make decisions, right? That's the key question on our show. And it seems like here you made this big decision, you executed it, you came back as the founder. But I'm I'm curious, like ha has this changed how you make decisions? Notably, the last time you were on the show, I asked you that question. And you said, I don't like making decisions, <laughs> right? I want to hand off as many decisions as I can. And now it's like, you want, like, I'm hearing you, you want your hand on the wheel. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I have to be way more tops down than I have been in the past. Um, it's not that I don't like making decisions. I, I like to um, empower other people to make decisions, but I think I did that a little too much. We want to empower lots of people to make the kind of reversible decisions and so they can move really fast. One of the things I got for six months and at most of my time in that, about half of that time, I was a full-time investor uh, and I'm still a venture partner at Founders Fund. It was very 
clarifying to have that time to reflect and think about businesses from this perspective of an investor and then come back even through that entire time, start thinking about Flexport from the mindset of an investor. Um, and the, the main thing investors are looking for is return on invested capital, of course. And within a company, it's kind of like, okay, your marginal dollar spent, how much profit is that going to generate in the years to come? And that's your return on invested capital at the margin, which is the fundamental thing that the most valuable companies in the world, their next marginal dollar reinvested in the business has a very high rate of compounding. And now you've got a compounding machine. I don't think that that's necessarily the lens that founders have all day. They think a lot more about competitive advantage with customers, the culture of their team. Those things should lead to a higher re return on invested capital, but it's like not the first and foremost lens. Um, I don't think it needs to be, but it, you want to be able to tie the stuff that you do to return on invested capital. So coming back into that seat, into this seat, with a lot more focus on like, hey, these are like the three things that matter. And if you're in a job for 10 years, if you're not taking that time to reflect and go, what are the two, three, maximum four, probably things that really, really matter and spend all your time on that, it's very clarifying. And so for us, it's really that culture piece and especially the culture of talking to customers every day. I've said that a bunch of times here and solving problems for customers. Coming out of that, it's quality, on-time performance, data quality, that's what people pay us for, the response times when people are requesting things from us, how fast are we able to solve their problems? And then uh, cost discipline, we gotta, be, we gotta be cheap for our customers, <laughs> therefore we gotta have, you know, not waste money internally. It's kind of it, those are the three things that really matter for this company and so I spend all my time obsessing on those three things. So how do you and, make decisions? That, is that's the framework? Is how does it line up with those three things? Yeah, I want to see. Uh, uh, then we have a bunch of initiatives that line to that, and I'm going to spend all my time on the initiatives that are lined up to one of those three things. A lot of it right now is on the cost discipline side, making sure we're running really good unit economics and not wasting money on fixed yeah. cost stuff that doesn't add value. So, and how you make decisions pretty clear. I mean, you get smart people in the room and listen to them and then um, make a call. I don't think that's rocket science. You, I, I do like, I think Amazon has some pretty good principles for this around like decide if this is a reversible decision or not. Yeah. It's interesting. What's really interesting here is you're even the customer focus, right? Is That's Amazon. Like a lot of what you're describing are pretty big Amazon values, right? Yeah. Focus yeah. On the customer, bring the cost down. And then you had an Amazon guy, and it seems like you got away from those values. But that seems strange. Amazon's still, like, to, to my view, the best, you know, obviously top company in the world. And I do think they're really customer obsessed. It's just a really different type of customer. Consumers versus businesses are super different. And, I mean, you know, get some Amazon merchants on your podcast. I don't think they're going to tell you that uh, Amazon <laughs> is super customer obsessed when it comes to people who are selling goods yeah. on Amazon. Like Fair enough. Their customer is different. And so that's actually a really fundamental difference. Like our customer is the merchant. One of the di big differences between us and Amazon is that Flexport is a neutral provider of logistics and Amazon is a provider of logistics, but their customer is the end consumer. And you're often going to be at conflict, you know, it's like almost inherently like the merchant and that consumer want different things. You mentioned cuts. You, you're smaller. You mentioned how you change some of how you are talking to customers and how you're doing the work. How is Flexport structured now? Have you changed it? We changed uh, the operations piece. We've made some, some tweaks. We put the operations into those customer organized squads. So we merged a few groups. Like that work had been broken off across ops, the account management team, we just kind of merged those two teams and then and then tightly paired a sales person to that group and call it out a squad. It's like this cross-functional team. That's the biggest change we made. Made a, We moved some leadership pieces around. We moved some people around to different roles, elevated a bunch of internal people, but haven't made dramatic org structure changes. I think actually I kept a lot of what Dave did where he had way more direct reports than I ever would have in the past. And I've now done that too. I have like a lot of direct reports, I think 12 right now. I kind of like it. I don't like making decisions with all 12 people in the room. I'm pretty clear about that with the group. I'm like, we'll get a smaller group together based on what the decision is that needs to get made. And that smaller group usually involves someone or several people from down in the org who are more experts on that particular topic, more in the weeds on it and make decisions in smaller groups. But for CEO level, visibility and everything that's happening. I kind of like having more directs uh, and works. it works really well. 
All right, let's talk about shipping, which is what you do. The last time you were on, it was the middle of the supply chain crisis, maybe the height of it. You had just come to literally worldwide fame by asking the port of Long Beach to stack containers higher. Uh, like you were, you were riding high, but the supply chain was not, and rates were really high. It seems like the crisis has eased and rates have come way back down. Is that that's what you're seeing? That the the crisis part of it is over. The main cause of the crisis, let's say, was actually just a huge surge in demand for goods. I mean, you had a 20% increase in container volumes flowing through the ports of the United States, and ports couldn't keep up. Um, but we ship more containers than ever before. So I, you know, in, in many cases, it's like a demand crunch rather than a supply problem. I mean, yeah. The supply side of the industry shipped more containers than ever in human history. So it's hard to say, like, yo, you guys are failing. Um, but there was more demand than ever. That that subsided. So demand is way back down to pre-pandemic levels. So it just kind of the delays went away. Interestingly, though, the carriers, the ocean carriers, the people that own the ships made a lot of money, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars across 10, 10 companies. So these were um, incredibly profitable years for them. They ordered, and I think they'll tell you themselves and have said it publicly, they ordered too many ships. They went out, took all that cash, reinvested into more ships. I think they felt like the boom times were, in a, you know, this is a yeah. classic human psychology in any asset-based businesses. It's boom and bust because in the good times, you go buy more assets. Then all of a sudden, you have oversupply. The price crashes and the assets, uh, now you have too many, too few. Uh, sorry, you have too many assets. Yeah, the boom and bust cycle. They ordered about 25% more container shipping capacity coming online in the next two years. So you're going to see lower prices. Uh, it's going to put them under a lot of pressure to be hard to make money. And it's good for the good for consumers. The price is going to come way back down. The really interesting thing that's happening in container shipping, well, there's a couple. One is Panama Canal has like a drought and there's a huge blockage down there. It's That depends on rainwater. It's rain-fed, the canal. Unlike the Suez Canal, Suez Canal is just ocean connects, the Mediterranean connects to the Red Sea at sea level. There's no locks. Panama Canal, there's locks. You go uphill and then back downhill. So it's fed by rainwater. So the drought has meant the levels are too low, can't pass ships through. That's very interesting because uh, it's leading to delays. And then Suez, you had a, just two days ago, the rebels in Yemen shot a missile and hit a ship. There have been a number of these attacks on ships. That's something to really watch for is like, if we can't ship through the Suez, it's going to be a real disaster for global logistics. Um, and then the other super interesting phenomenon, I just got back from two weeks in our Asia offices. I visited six of our Asia offices in 10 days, and I met with a bunch of uh, major cargo airlines that were based over there. And they told me between 30 and 50% of all of the volume that's moving in the cargo, air cargo, is parcels from, for e-commerce. Wow. And that's up majorly. And some of these companies are projecting 100% year-over-year growth, which is just crazy to think about. So if the, if the Suez suddenly becomes unreliable for shipping from Europe to Asia or Asia to Europe, it only takes a small amount of volume diverting to air freight because a 747, as big as it is, will only hold seven containers of car cargo. And these big ships hold 10,000 plus. So... You know, just a handful of them switch <laughs> over all the cargo airlines. The price of air freight is going to go nuts. It's going to be very unreliable for fast-moving consumer goods to fly on air. So it's never a dull day in logistics. It's like the most fun industry in the world. It's like yeah. every day something new. How do you think about that? You, you mentioned, obviously, the Suez. There's militants there. there. There are two wars going on right now. Has that yeah. affected your business? The Russia-Ukraine war has had a big impact. First off, some of the biggest cargo airlines in the world were based in Russia and Ukraine. That capacity has been effectively pulled offline. I think those, those, some of those planes, well, some of them got destroyed. You've probably seen the, the, the Antonov 225, the world's biggest yeah. cargo plane, got blown up. A lot of the Russian ones are just grounded. And these planes, if you don't fly them and maintain them, they just like can never be brought back online is what I'm told. Uh, so you lost about 5%, I think, is the number of the world's cargo planes taken offline permanently. Then Russia overflight, you have to go around Russia right now for many airlines won't fly over Russia. I noticed this on my own flight home from Singapore to the U.S. Normally, you would fly over Kamchatka Peninsula, end up over Alaska. I was like looking at the mountains up there. And now you, you don't do that. You go over the Pacific the whole way. You avoid the Russia overflight. Adds like an hour or two. Adds fuel costs. Going to Europe, same thing. A lot more is flying south of Russia. 
costs you a couple hours. Sometimes you have to refuel in Dubai or something like this. Costs money, slows down transit times. I mean, I, I hate to talk about money and transit times in the context of a war. It makes me sound like I'm insensitive, obviously. But, uh, but if you ask about the impact on logistics, that's pretty real. Um, the Israel one is, I think, more of a risk at this point, something that everybody needs to keep an eye on is if this, everybody in logistics, if this, if the Suez suddenly becomes under threat and insurance providers won't provide insurance, then you have to go around the Cape of Good Hope or you have to go around Africa. And that those seas are very rough down there, I'm told. It's very difficult for some of these container ships to go there. They'll have to be, have less containers. If you have a super overloaded container ship in heavy seas, they can, the containers will fall off. So that can be very, very disruptive. And it's a much longer journey. So that if a longer journey reduces the supply, increases price. So yeah, those will, again, like it's not the important thing about war, obviously, but when it comes to logistics, it has an impact. You're describing this as every day is a new challenge. You've got to grow your business inside all of this. What do you see 12 months out, 24 months out? Are you thinking on those kinds of timelines or are you at one, three, five? Oh, you you know, you always have to be long-term thinker and short-term. It's the, um, that's the nature of running a, a high-growth company. We are laser-focused on quality right now for our customers. I don't worry about growth very much at Flexport because we know if we just do a good job, the growth comes. And we know how to grow, too. It's like, you know, we have a great differentiated product. When it comes to technology user experience, there's nothing like Flexport in the global logistics market, which is a multi-trillion dollar industry when you count all the ancillary services we offer, trucking and Flexport Capital is our inventory lending business. Like we just have trillions of dollars of market uh, available. So it's just do a great job, get in front of customers, show them your product, show them what you do. You win, you always win business. Now it's um it's all about quality. So, and I'm not even worried about on a one to two year time frame for, for us to get profitable again, we need to grow about 35%. I actually think we can do that in one year. I, I mean, I've yeah. set that goal internally. I think it's it's uh, fun to have ambitious goals, and I think it's doable. But uh, you know, you do it over two to three years, like that's a layup, in my opinion. So we're we're just mostly focused on quality and let the let the scoreboard take care of itself. Yeah, you mentioned that in the the supply chain crisis, such as it was, was really a demand crunch because people wanted more stuff. It is the holiday season. Is all that extra capacity that came online is that going to be useful this holiday season? It's been relatively smooth sailing as far as getting deliveries in for holiday season. We're peak season is over as far as ocean freight. That freight usually arrives in October or so. Air freight even now it should already be flown in. It, it is middle of peak for our fulfillment business, Flexport Omni Channel, where we're delivering to consumers' doors. Things are flowing pretty smoothly. I've, at least when it comes to our operation, ninety nine percent on time performance uh, for shipping out on time. So we feel we feel pretty good about it. I haven't I haven't gotten like the latest. Media hits from uh, UPS or FedEx. They often put out these good reports. I haven't I haven't paid that much attention. I should go see what they're saying. All right. The last time you were on, it was because you you pointed out here's one one big fix to help this port. Is there something else in your mind where like if I could wave a magic wand and fix one thing in the supply chain, I'd fix it. Um. Yes. The thing that's really interesting right now that we are fixing is what's happening with AI. Yeah, We've had incredible results working with OpenAI, as well as with a, a smaller company called Adept. It's my friend's company. He used to be the head of engineering for OpenAI, actually. He left to start his own company. What we're finding is that because we've spent a decade breaking the work of freight forwarding, of moving a container around the world into small, discrete, atomic tasks that have to get completed, that they those tasks become very susceptible to AI knocking it out. Whereas if you just told AI, hey, ship this container from from Ho Chi Minh to St. Louis, it would it would just hallucinate some weird answer. Like it wouldn't know it's- <laughs> but if you're like, hey, move this data off this port terminal website into this database, it's like, yeah, it does it instantly and accurately. Um, and so that's like, if I could fix one thing, it would be like, I don't know, maybe it's a fast forward button on our AI roadmap because there, every couple of uh, weeks we like, hey, we automated this thing that used to take you know, a thousand hours a month of Flexport labor. Now it's been chipped away. So it's not like this thing just overnight AI just solves the problem, but methodically going through one task at a time within our operations, the the cost of logistics, the cost of shipping a container door to door, about 10% of that cost that the customers pay has is going towards labor in the coordination layer. 
you know, laboring companies like Flexport. So if you made the cost of shipping everything 10% cheaper, I think that'd be a huge boost for the world economy. So yeah, I'm pretty excited about that, but it's not like, I don't, there's no like gods of AI that we have to pray to <laughs> to make this happen. It's like a lot of hard work by just implementing tech that a lot of it's off the shelf. Some of it's open source. Some of it's from these companies I mentioned, some of it's in-house developing like kind of models our own. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very, very exciting times. Frankly, like, you know, I've been talking about automation and logistics. Oh, this is what we're going to do. Automate this 10% of labor down, down, down. It's been very challenging to do, like much more so than I would have told you five years ago, 10 years ago, obviously, oh, we haven't made the progress that I wanted to. Suddenly in the last three, six months, they, uh, uh, OpenAI and, and other companies have made this like, suddenly it's possible. And that looks like really enhanced robotic process automation, right? You're going to log into some bad system, pull a PDF down, put it into a good system and move on? Or that uh, looks say, like yeah, the AI is actually doing it? It's like RPA that doesn't break. Yeah, it's probably the best way to describe it. And we build like a lot of scrapers. Like Flexport gets data. Where is this container? We get that data from on a given container. We'll probably have 16 to 18 different data sources of where is a given container. So a lot of what we have to do is reconcile. Who do we believe? We call it the belief network. You know, which data are we going to present to the operator, to the customer, based on the reliability that we know of these data sources? Some of those data sources, even with that many, it'll fail and you get no data. And you have a human log into some website or make some phone <laughs> call. You got to. Like, otherwise, I don't know where the container is. I'm not going to be able to deliver it. Some of those humans logging onto a website and checking. Or we have bots like Scrapers, RPA, that goes out and gets the data. Those bots and Scrapers are often failing. Yeah. Because the carrier slightly changes the website. Now, all of a sudden, the thing is kind of brittle. The AI just does it. Or take an ocean carrier contract comes in like these Excel files. They have like all the different port pairs. It's thousands of rows, many tabs, if then statements, like subject to like, oh, if it's out of gauge, it goes up by this price or if it weighs too much at this price. Like um, that was taking several days to get that into our databases. Try to have like a 24 hour turnaround time, but it, you don't always hit it. And these contracts are only valid for a few weeks in many cases. So if I lose like three days on a two-week contract, it's less about yeah. saving my labor it is than it is like getting those three days back so I can give the right rates to the customer quickly. The AI can do it in less than five minutes and be more accurate than the humans. So things like that are like just improving the customer experience and lowering costs. How fast until you, you roll AI out into the actual logistics of shipping? We're doing it every day. Most of it's behind the scenes today. But, oh, another great example is like, we have to uh, plan what, we've got a container booked from a customer. Which ship should it go on? I'm trying to hit this transit time. The customer needs it to arrive by this date. Let's just say from Yen Tian, which is the port in Shenzhen, China, the, I think it's the second biggest port in China after Shanghai. All right, I'm going from there to Southern California. I've got two options in Southern California, LA and Long Beach. And you go, all right, it sounds kind of simple. I, but actually, I'll have contracts with like six different ocean carriers, and that'll give me 12 different sail strings. In a given week, there's 12 different ships that go on that combo. Which one am I? And then I've got multiple weeks, obviously. So which ship is this container going to end up on? That, until this summer, was a problem that humans at Flexport would make the decision. Now it's a problem that AI decides. And the reason you really need AI for this because it's not about saving, the, there's not that many people required to make these decisions, right? It's pretty cheap. Uh, it's not about saving labor. It's because every week, 1,600 containers have their dates changed by the customer. The manufacturer is delayed and the cargo is not ready when we thought it would be. So in the past, I would end up having to cancel that booking for the ocean carrier, which makes me a bad customer if I'm canceling my booking. And that's how it is in ocean freight. 30% of all container bookings get canceled for that reason. So what we do now with AI is we replan every container in the network 10 times a day, and we'll pull another container that's ready forward a week. We'll wow. reshuffle everything. So now I'm in, when, that, when someone cancels, someone else is getting a better transit time. And I'm not canceling on the carrier. So what the net result of this was a 20% increase in our on-time performance. It's like dramatic a reduction of our carrier uh, cancellation so that we're best in the industry for cancellations and save ourselves 2% of our costs because it's finding the cheapest routing that'll hit the transit time. 
I don't think there's ever been a, I mean, it has to be the best use of machine learning and shipping. Um, maybe the best use of technology in shipping. And we just launched that in July of this year. So big, a huge potential. And that's, you can do this at every single job. A lot of it is like, hey, it's a, they're doing a better job than human. It's not like the humans are that expensive, but it does improve your margin and let you lower your cost too. Yeah. Well, I feel like I could talk to you about that alone for another hour. So you're going to have to come back. All right. I'm happy to. Because that would be really great. Thank you for being so candid about all the changes. I really appreciate it. Ryan Peterson, thank you so much for being on Decoder. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank Ryan for taking the time to join Decoder. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. I really do read all the emails, which some of you are discovering every week. Or you can hit me up directly on threads. I'm at Reckless1280. We also have a TikTok, which is very fun. It's at DecoderPod. Please go check it out and subscribe. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. Look, it's the end of the year. That's what I want. Give me a five-star review on your podcast app. It'd be great. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Boxing Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Statt. It was edited by Callie Wright. Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.